This episode is sponsored by Arculus and Bullish. Stay tuned for more information on both of them later in this episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times every week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin trading, finance, music, art, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, seemingly every single podcast I record now lands on one topic, and that is what is life going to be like in the metaverse? Some people think that we'll be living fully in the metaverse in 10 years, while others think that this is something we could be looking at largely in 2022. Well, today's guest is Robbie Young. He's the CEO of Animoca Brands. He's probably the most qualified person to talk about what the metaverse, and specifically economies in the metaverse with regard to NFTs, might look like in the year to come and beyond that in the future. Now, Animoca made huge news of late, raising, a, I believe, a $388 million round, bringing their valuation to $5.5 billion which is double what it was just a few months before in October. So if that's any indication of how large interest is right now in the metaverse and NFTs, then uh, we should all be very excited. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate the time. And uh, and yes, you're right. I, I think people's interest has definitely been peaked, you could say. Yeah, I, I think that that's very clear. Now, as I alluded to, there's people who think that we're building something for a decade from now, but there's some who say, you know, there's been such exponential growth in the space that this could very much be a part of our lives, you know, within a few months or the coming years. Where do you stand on that timeline? So I actually think that the metaverse is kind of a term that, you know, has has become popular as of late, but kind of describes something that's been an evolutionary process that we're in the middle of. It's something that started a long time ago, to be honest, because the metaverse, as we see it, is really a shared online space for you to do kind of the three major you know, things that you do in life. Um, you entertain yourself, so you play, um, and you learn there, so you have education, and you work there. And I think the internet has been really good at the play, first and foremost. We've been entertaining ourselves online for a long time. Um, and education more recently, you know, in the last decade or so has really hit its stride with a lot of online learning. Um, but the work part has not really been there so much. And I think that's due to the fact that, I mean, obviously, you know, we all work in technology, many of us, and we make a living because of technology, but we don't really work inside a virtual environment, not at least until the pandemic, now that we're spending so much time on, on Zoom, for example, and other, you know, and, and there are other streaming platforms available, obviously. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's, this is really the metaverse. Um, it's the beginning of being able to do everything that you do online, whether you choose to or not. It's so interesting to consider Zoom being part of the metaverse, but it really is. It's a way of interacting without being in person and living your, your lives uh, from remote locations. It's, it's such an interesting view on what it could be. And as you said, that means we've had this sort of evolution, but I think a lot of people are envisioning this ready player one yes. future where you you know put on your uh, VR, you plug in and you go live a completely separate life. Frankly, that's not my vision of what the metaverse will be. I think it'll be more of everyday things that are somewhat incorporated into our lives. But do you see that sort of future? Yes. Yes. So that that sort of that will be part of the metaverse. And and that will be like everything else with technology. I think that will be a sort of pro level experience of the metaverse where people really just want to jump in and they're 
massive enthusiasts and so they will have all the hardware and they will you know be able to replicate themselves in you know realistic three-dimensional you know avatars etc and live out their fantasies inside virtual spaces absolutely um, but i think the concept of the metaverse is just as relevant for the fact that you know you walk down the street of any city in the world these days and people have their heads down in their smartphones and while they're doing that, they're still in the metaverse, so to speak. Um, I think what has changed everything now are two big trends. Um, the first one is blockchain. So blockchain provides us with a, an economic underpinning to the internet, a secure economic underpinning, which we never had before. So we've had a great internet for many years, but we never had a great way to do peer-to-peer -peer financial transactions. And once you can do that, you enable the, you know, it's, it, it adds a lot of value to entertainment and to education, but it mainly enables the work bucket. It means that you can actually have a job online one-to-one -one, and it doesn't require you to have any other infrastructure other than your blockchain wallet, which means that basically you can work not just at a distance, but at the margins of traditional economic systems. Um, as a result, we see huge numbers of people who are now, you know, being employed via crypto payments um, in many developing countries where financial infrastructure is not part of the global banking system. And that's pretty amazing. Axie Infinity being obviously one of the best examples yep. for that. I believe that you guys are heavily invested in Sky Mavis, who, you know, are the ones who be behind Axie Infinity. And that's, in my mind, a very, very early iteration of what's to come in that space. Right? Yes, definitely. And, and I think the other pillar of it is, of course, gaming, because the metaverse per se is going to be largely built out by game companies um, because game companies happen to be the types of business, the employers that employ the types of people who have the skill sets for building these virtual environments because we have artists and game designers and programmers who are used to making 3D environments, whether they're photorealistic or not. Um, and we know how to make compelling, user-friendly interactive content. So we're kind of, you know, we're, we're what website builders were 25 years ago. Yeah, that, that's a perfect sort of, I, I, I guess, way to view it is that now we're just sort of building it in 3D as an experience. And I love what you said about the blockchain being the underlying layer. Obviously, that's the sort of move from web two to web three that people keep talking about is having this internet of value. But that now means that basically you can do anything transactional without a third party in between, right? And Correct. eliminating that third party seems to be the key to all of this. Uh, yes. And the nice part is that you don't even, you don't need to, but you can. So I think the interesting next evolution is going to be how people provide value as third parties. So, you know, I was having a discussion this morning with somebody who's, who's new to blockchain. And one of the concerns that she mentioned was, you know, she said, well, one of the, the big issues that I keep hearing about is people being concerned of things like, you know, getting scammed or what happens if you send a transaction to somebody else and it's the wrong person and you can't get it back. And I said, well, actually, I think that's where we're going to see another industry of people who absorb risk 
just the way our credit card companies do for us today, because we may not all want to make peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Some people would prefer to do them through an intermediary who provides a cushion for mistakes, and that's a job description. I would argue that most people want that. <laughs> right? Correct. They don't think that they do, but you see it sort of anecdotally with people who come into crypto for the first time, right? Or who buy Bitcoin for the first time and then realize that the idea of being your own bank is actually terrifying. <laughs> right. Yes. And and especially the more that grows, the more risk is associated, the more emotional you are, obviously, about potentially losing it. And that's why we're seeing sort of this proliferation in the Bitcoin space of like large custodians. And that's how institutions are coming in with custodians. So it's interesting to think of the fact that we'll need all of those services even yes. now when we're sort of transacting directly. Insurance, you know, uh people exactly. to cover well, the risk, it's, people it's to like an insurance policy. Exactly. Exactly. Well, because the, the prospect of, you know, I'm the first one to say I love the idea of having a hardware wallet built into my smartphone for convenience. But then you think, oh, well, I'm already carrying around a thousand dollar device in my pocket waiting to get mugged of it when I'm in some busy city. Um, what if I put all my crypto on that, too? Would that be horrible to carry it around with me everywhere I go? So, you know, there are trade offs. Right, but there's going to be solutions for that as well, right? And I think exactly. that those of us who have been uh, around for a while, myself only 2016, but I don't even put anything on my phone. I have to have sort of <laughs> separate devices that are in safes and remote locations because I know that I could be a target and would be walking around. And so, but I do, I am confident that they will build secure systems where then I will be comfortable having it on my phone, walking around and knowing that even if somebody takes it, yes. they won't have access. But that doesn't that just kind of, show how very early we are still in all yep. of this. Exactly. And I think and I think the coolest part is while we still haven't figured out the answers to everything, I think one of the answers to your question of why there is so much interest from for example investors who are investing in the sector um, is because what little the market has shown of progress to date um, has been dramatic. So I think unlike previous tech cycles you know, the emergence of blockchain-based entertainment has had, a, you know, an incredible year last year, a year unlike any other technology I've ever seen, where companies went from a standing start to tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue within the first year of operations. And, and that's very different because, you know, for anybody who's been through Web 1 and Web 2, those were largely cycles built around you know, building up user bases at heavy cost for a long time before you even thought about monetizing anything. And now we have a an industry where monetization comes from the first thing you sell, which, which is completely different. And I think um, a reassurance to investors that there is something here. Yeah, maybe it's not like the internet bubble where it's valuations aren't based on actually uh, any earnings or, or income. And you talk about that scale. I remember reading that first time that Axie Infinity had crossed, I believe, a billion dollars in revenue in a month. And mm -hmm. then seeing that Vegas had had a record-breaking month and all of the casino revenue in Vegas combined was like $750 million. Yep. Right. And then the so funny thing Axie is that- Axie was more than every casino combined in Vegas in their best month. Yes. And the funny thing is that that was really widely reported because that was August for Axie Infinity. Yeah. And then- actually much less reported, because I guess a billion is a big milestone, was that in, in September, they hit two and a half billion. Yeah, it, it, exponential. 
Yeah. So they more than doubled the next month after already beating every record ever set. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible and mind-boggling when you think about it. And one of the things that I like to sort of discuss when it comes to Axie, I'm just sort of obsessed with the use case, but Mm -hmm. it's not that easy, right? I mean, you still have to get a MetaMask wallet, buy some Ethereum, move it into a Ronin wallet, understand how to do this. It's not, the UX UI is not grandma can use it simple, right? So I like to imagine, and I'm sure that's what you're working on, how do we get to the point and what does it look like when you know, doing play to earn and participating in all of this is as easy as checking my email or Googling something. Yes. And I think what's interesting is, so first of all, it will be that easy. And I think we've, we as a consumer society, consumer culture have been lulled into a false sense of uh, ease of use because mobile as a platform is so incredibly easy as a result of being so highly centralized predominantly between Apple and Google, because we all forget that we gave up all of our payment information and personal information years ago. And if you actually think back, you know, if you're an Android user, for example, when Android first came out in 2011, 2012, and you tried to connect a payment source, that was, that was way harder than opening a blockchain wallet and doing KYC. I can tell you that much. And, and that was even if you had a, you know, a perfectly, you know, well, well uh, uh, distributed credit card from a major banking institution, it was still hard. And the, f- the only reason onboarding is easy is because they have all our information already. So actually, you don't need to put it in again. Um, and the same is true, obviously, in, in crypto, because once you've got a blockchain wallet, everything's easy after that. Um, yeah. Now, that notwithstanding, I think we can see from the success of Axie, the power of incentive, because if you look at the 2 million plus players who have opened blockchain wallets for the purpose of playing, it's because the incentive is big enough that they will go through that, that quote unquote hassle to do so. Absolutely. If there's a way to make more money than you're making in your uh, day job by sitting at home and you know farming axes, you're going to find a way to do it because it's, it's better for your life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I find very interesting about that, though, is that then you have the in-game economy and the way that uh, people make money. Obviously, you've seen the price of Smooth Love Potion, for example, continue to drop because it's incentive that people are given. And if they want this to be their real income in the real world, they need to sell it, right? Yes. And so doesn't that speak to the fact that maybe a lot of the problems that we have with monetary policy in the real world are also going to be challenges in the metaverse and all of a sudden crypto doesn't? Yes solve it all in the same way, like, you know, Bitcoin fixes that we talk about with monetary policy and economies, they're going to have the same challenges in the metaverses in the real world. Yes, we will. We will for sure. Because I think one of the things that's become apparent is that when, when we're faced with questions in the metaverse, often we can solve some of those issues with thinking about how we solve those issues in the physical world. So things like, um, you know, property rights and virtual land and and transfer of titles and things, we can actually replicate all of those legal principles that we have in the physical world, governance, you know, governance tokens and all this kind of stuff. Um, but some stuff, you know, there's no, there's no point in relitigating and trying to come up with a new idea when, for example, legal precedent in the physical world, you know, people have been arguing over these things for centuries and they didn't come up with a better solution than what we have currently. So maybe okay. we should take, take an idea from that. You know what I mean? Um, but on the flip side, as you said, the economic models in games, I think we have to first 
we have to bow down at the feet of Sky Mavis because what they've done with Axie Infinity is incredible. And it is incredible, not just because of how far they've come, but because it's a constant work in progress. You know, it was an accidental success. They were trying to make a really fun game that they enjoy, and it turned out to, to be something with much bigger implications than just entertainment. You know, and they've created an entire industry of play to earn games as a result of this. And they've been innovating in order to solve problems, which is, you know, the mother of, in, of invention is, you know, having problems, basically. Sure. Um, and, and so they haven't figured out all the problems yet, but I have to say they've been doing a damn good job of solving them along the way. And so I, 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 I always give them the benefit of the doubt that, you know, there are going to be ways to continue solving these problems. And the beauty of what we have with, with blockchain is that the solutions to the problems can often be implemented relatively quickly and also experimented with relatively quickly, like tested, like A-B testing and this kind of stuff, um, which is different, of course, than you know, asking the Fed to change monetary policy and see what happens to the economy. Yeah, we, we, we see that in real time seemingly every every day right now, unfortunately. So yes. uh, obviously Sky Mavis, Axie, that's a part of your portfolio. What else uh, are the sort of key investments that Animoca has and what are you working on? Sure. Well, we're working on all kinds of things. Um, we have both our own studios uh, and also we have minority investments, strategic investments we make. So Axie and Sky Mavis would be a strategic investment. Um, just like we're strategic investors in Dapper and OpenSea and many other companies. Um, and then within our own studios, um, we have a lot of content focused on different verticals. So we have our Rev Motorsports ecosystem, where we work with Formula One and MotoGP and Formula E. Um, we have our Gamey um, uh, Casual Games. That's a studio in Europe that just focuses on um, building token incentives for casual gameplay. Um, and collecting rewards, because the idea is, you know, uh, we want to bring new users into blockchain. That's the, that's the power of entertainment content. And one of the best ways to leverage that power is through mobile platforms. And at the moment, there are, um, you know, there are challenges um, associated with working in a, in a compliant way in the app stores with blockchain technology, as we know. Um, you know, it's not, it's... Uh, the easiest way to describe it is it's just not entirely clear what the rules are because the rules are still yet to be created in many cases. Um, so what we're trying to do is with our game platform is to figure out ways that we can integrate blockchain mechanics and incentive mechanisms um, to encourage people to be engaged in casual games. Um, and they've done that now on Polygon since, since October very successfully. Um, you know, we brought on a couple of million users onto Polygon through these really sticky casual games that we know people love. Um, and then on the hardcore content side, we have things like Phantom Galaxies, which we're launching at the moment um, from our studio Blowfish. And that's, you know, big cinematic space-themed content for, you know, real fans of kind of Transformers meets, you know, EVE Online type of stuff. Right. And you're launching that now. You said yes, so that's that's exactly. in the works. That's so that's happening. That's the and that's the level that I think a lot of people are saying five, ten years, right? Yeah, it's happening. No, now. it's happening now. And and to be honest, it would have it would have been out a few months earlier. Um, but Steam changed their mind on on their view on blockchain games the same week <laughs> we sure were going did. to launch it. <laughs> that's right. I, I I forgot about that. Steam uh, Steam that was not a popular decision for them. No, with with, with the no, audience, it was right? Not. And do you think that they'll 
pay for that, so to speak? Or do you think that they'll pivot back? Because it seems like that's uh, in denial of an, what seems like an undeniable trend in the way that gaming uh, is moving. I mean, you, why would anyone choose to play a game that you can't make money in if you have a equal quality game that you can actually make a living playing? Yes. So I, I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I think it's just, you know, skepticism on the part of a traditional game industry where the challenge I think for people in traditional gaming is that much of the success of late of blockchain games has often focused on financial return. And because the industry is young, you know, we don't have many examples of so-called high-end AAA content development that people are used to on other platforms, consoles, and things like that. I mean, frankly, because it takes, number one, it takes years to make that kind of content. Um, and in a four-year-old industry, that doesn't give us much time. Um, and on the other hand, because integrating blockchain mechanics and a totally new economic infrastructure and stuff is, is, is challenging. You know, we're still, we're still um, developing the technology tools to allow uh, us to do these things at scale. Um, and whereas the tools for gaming have been around to do that at scale for quite a long time. So I think it's about a maturity of platform and you can't expect an apples to apples comparison with such nascent technology. Uh, you, you took the words out of my mouth, which was, I was going to bring up scale because you know, I think that everyone understands at this point, I don't think there's any single layer one. I mean, even Polygon, which is a layer two that makes Ethereum much faster by one sort of game, like you were talking about, yeah. had some problems, right? They had some congestion, prices went up, transactions slowed. One could certainly make the argument that none of the blockchains that exist right now can operate at the scale necessary, right? So how much of a challenge is that? Yep. And, and I think... I think first it's a challenge, but it's one we're solving right now. And I think, I think to make a fair analogy, you have to, again, think back to when you first started to download mobile games. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, but 2010 and 11, when there was only iOS games, you had to pay up front because it was pay per download. And most high-end games required you to do a seven or 900 meg download first yeah. before you could play something which is a ridiculous thing really now that we think about it in the current context, but it was because they wanted to give a certain kind of experience, which basically meant as you know, a developer outside of the US largely, you couldn't distribute a game because nobody in a developing country would pay for a 900 meg download. With. I mean, yeah. it was an absurd idea. And, and we're kind of at that stage now with blockchain where you think, okay, so we can't have a game with with 10 million DAUs because the network won't accommodate that. But I mean, look at where we were a year ago compared to now. With that kind of progress, I think we'll solve these problems very soon. Yeah. And that means that in theory, we'll be able to onboard a billion yes. people rather than 150 million or, or whatever. So you're, yes. you're confident that that scale is coming. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, the way how fast we've seen things develop in this space yeah. is absurd. Well, I'm confident that the scale is coming. And then on the other hand, it also doesn't need to come quite so quickly because what we've realized with content on the blockchain is that it monetizes at a much different rate because when we have player-owned economies in games, people spend more because the money is not just going from the, from the customer into the pocket of the developer. The money circulates in an ecosystem where the customer can 
sell their items in the game to somebody else. And so whether or not they make money, like, you know, so much headline ink has been devoted to people making money. I think to me, the excitement of blockchain gaming is that you don't lose all your money, which (laughs) is a really boring headline, but the idea that you can play games and, you know, recycle your digital content and get 10, 20 cents back on the dollar of what you spent, that's actually a, a really big seismic shift because what it means is that the $200 billion a year game industry may be subject to 20% overall growth because people are spending more because they don't lose their shirts when they play games anymore. And I think that's a really big story. That is a huge story. I think the entire story of sort of, you know, I don't know how metaverse, web three, NFT, what we want to call it. Speaking of what it could look like in a year or two years or three years, I like to look back one year because Mm -hmm. at the beginning of 2021, when it came to crypto and blockchain, all people were talking about really was Bitcoin, right? They were talking about Michael Saylor and Tesla and Elon Musk and all these things. And we sort of had this meme coin And the expectation was that all this money was going to pour into the crypto space by companies buying Bitcoin, right? And what happened? $25 billion into picks and shovels of projects being built Web3 that have almost nothing effectively to do with Bitcoin at all. Yep. Well, because Bitcoin paved the way and showed us what was possible. And then NBA Top Shot came along and said, hey, look what happens if you if you think that what you imagine using Bitcoin or Ethereum in this case as the underpinning to do something totally different, what happens if you take that idea of, you know, the Bitcoin financial system and, you know, put it under the hood of an entertainment product, you know, and that was, that was the genius behind CryptoKitties, frankly, which was the aha moment. And, and I think that that once people see that vision, um, you can't unsee it, you know, it's like, so once you own something in a game, you think to yourself, why would I ever not own something in a game again? I mean, it just seems patently absurd. Um, and so that's why I think this is a slow evolution, but it's one that will not turn around because once you give people ownership of something, you can't take it away again. Guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this new crypto cold storage solution called Arculus. Their cold storage technology keeps your crypto keys off the internet and on an Arculus keycard. With no cables and no USB connections, it insulates you from the thousands of hacking attempts that happen online every single day. You can store, swap, and send your crypto all with a simple tap of your Arculus keycard. And if someone were to get a hold of your card, it doesn't even matter because they have three factor authentication, ensuring that the only person with access to your crypto is you. Guys, you can check out Arculus at thewolfofallstreets.link slash Arculus. That's A-R-C-U-L-U-S. And they're offering $40 off if you use promo code Arculus40. Secure your assets, secure your future with Arculus. Have you ever been trading crypto and during bouts of high volatility had your exchange go completely offline or seen the order books go thin and have absolutely no liquidity for your trade? I know that you have, it's happened to every single crypto trader, but it's not an issue anymore thanks to Bullish. Bullish is a powerful new exchange for digital assets that offers deep liquidity, automated market making, and industry-leading security. Combining the innovations of DeFi with the regulated environment of traditional finance, Bullish empowers users to trade with confidence across variable market conditions while securing a regulated environment that's backed by multi-billion dollar liquidity contributions from the Bullish treasury. Follow at Bullish on Twitter or visit thewolfofallstreets.link 
slash bullish to learn more. Not investment advice, digital assets, and cryptocurrencies are high-risk products. Consult your professional advisor before dealing in them. Bullish's services are available in select locations only and not to U.S. persons. Visit the wolfofallstreets.link slash bullish for important information and risk warnings. Yeah, and so that obviously you just talked about MBA Top Shot. I can only speak anecdotally, but I had friends who I tried for years to get into Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto who just weren't interested or didn't get it or told me I was the crazy one who became obsessed with MBA Top Shot, right? We're in our 40s. We're in our 40s. We all collected baseball cards and sports cards as kids. So they immediately got that. That immediately made sense. Even though it could be a digital clip that they don't even want of some guy they've never heard dunking, it made sense. Yes, because because the content category resonated with them. And I think that you know people all have familiarity with that, which is why games make such a powerful um, ambassador for the technology because so many people, you know, everybody is a gamer now, thanks to mobile games have gone from being a, an enthusiast's pastime to literally something that everybody on earth does because there, I don't think anybody who owns a smartphone doesn't play a game with the exception of maybe my father. <laughs> None? No None. games at all? No games. Unfor- unfortunately, getting your first smartphone at 80. Yeah. Yeah. Not even like a Wordle or a Scrabble or <laughs> a, you know, anything because we have all the classic games, right? That you can play that existed. So I even, exactly. you know, so you even find that the people of our parents' generation play the games that they loved on their smartphones. Exactly. Exactly. There's a little something for everyone there. So that obviously, you know, Top Shot sort of, I think, uh, was the first piece of Tinder in this fire, I would say very largely over the past year, which leads to this absolute NFT craze, right? Yes. And so I think we've seen this sort of experimental phase with the art side of it, the JPEGs, but that's not really the most exciting use case for NFTs, right? So I think that the whole idea behind NFTs is that um, NFTs create digital scarcity um, and that part is kind of it's 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 critical to the idea of having property ownership because you have something that's unique or you know one of a of a limited number of an addition of something. Um, but the key to providing value in NFTs is utility, um, and that's why we be- we believe strongly in the gaming thesis because at the end of the day, if you have in-game items that are NFTs, they have fundamental underlying utility because they're useful in a game. So you can, you know, people can have rare collectibles in a game and they love the aesthetic look of the artwork and other things, but fundamentally, you know, a sword in a game is used for killing dragons. And so it has this base utility that you can use it in the game and kill dragons, even if it's not worth 10 times on OpenSea later because, you know, people want to chase after a rare item. So having that underpinning of utility is critical Um, and, and, because we can enable interoperability between games, we have the potential of incrementally increasing the utility of existing NFTs. And that's why it's very exciting when you think about how content becomes the platform, because you can put out an NFT collection and then you can incrementally build more utility for those NFTs by creating more games, more experiences, more services to cater to that community around the NFT collection. And I think one of you know the great examples in the industry is, is Bored Apes, of course, because Yuga Labs the has- cr- Yes. So Yuga Labs has created this incredible community around Bored Apes. 
And, you know, they're catering to that with merchandise, with live events, with spin-offs and music. You know, we made an announcement, we're working with them to create a game experience. And so there are all these things that it now means to be an, a, a Board Ape member, if you will, as an owner. Um, so ownership makes you part of a community and gives you access to many different types of utility. And that actually has a direct impact, in my opinion, on the value of a board ape, because it's not just an image that you might like and you might like to share with your friends, at, like a piece of artwork, but it's also an access key to a wider set of services. And frankly, I completely had my opportunity there, missed the boat and didn't get it. And then it's one, I think that's my biggest miss of 2021, frankly. That's okay. I was sort of dismissive of it. I was sort of dismissive of it. I didn't really understand the IP side of it until I started seeing people getting record deals and the apes were the uh, musicians, right? No actual band. They'll play in the metaverse. You live this. I have a 20 year career, you know, as a DJ and music background and music producer. I should have gotten that very, very quickly. <laughs> and I totally missed. I totally missed. I was like, they're, they're silly. They're apes, right? I, I don't get it. And, and I missed. It's my bad, yep. really. And I, I regret it. Yep. I, don't worry. That, that, that room of people who missed that one is very large. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and because, because it's a very, it, it's a cultural zeitgeist moment. It's an idea of really pioneering how we're building online communities and they can be built around many different things. So we, we have a game called The Sandbox, which is quite popular as a user-generated content platform. And we're experiencing a lot of similar, you know, I think positive impacts of building community because the community of people who are developing in The Sandbox are incredibly passionate because they want to share their creations with everybody else. And The Sandbox has a relatively unique art style, so it allows them to express themselves in a particular way. And similar to the Bored Apes community, um, I think the passion level of the community equates to the potential for it as a business. But in that community, you buy the land, right? And yes. then you develop on the land as opposed to owning the ape or the character. Correct, correct. And didn't Warner Music Group just secure they a did. huge plot of land to effectively start throwing music festivals and experiences in the metaverse? They did, they did, thank you. Um, and. I think that it's one of those kind of, you know, we were talking earlier about um, making analogies to the physical world. And I think this, you know, real estate analogy in the sandbox is a great one because there are third party, you know, developers. And when I say developers, literal developers, as in real estate developers who develop metaverse real estate. Um, and so they come into the sandbox and they buy land and they develop it, which means creating entertainment content but they're basically just increasing the value of the land by adding services and experiences to it, just like you would on physical land. So in fact, the business model for them is the same. Um, and you can just, yeah. And you can just translate that into a metaverse context. Yeah, I, you can. And, and I once, at some point I tweeted, it would be really interesting to see real estate companies in the metaverse who go and find you the best plot of land. And then I immediately found out that that already existed and that was, already existed and, and, and was very much a thing. And, but there's a lot of pushback about land in the metaverse, right? Because, mm -hmm. and admittedly, I was guilty of this initially too. You think of land being valuable in the real world because of the scarcity, right? There will never be more. What's to prevent un 
bigger, better, more advanced, newer, shinier metaverse from coming along and all of a sudden making the sandbox or Decentraland or any of these seem moot. And then all of a sudden you've spent millions of dollars developing in a metaverse that nobody's hanging out at. I think the analogy would be Las Vegas or Dubai, where places, cities were constructed out of land that was considered undevelopable until somebody proved them wrong. And it shows that the idea of developing real estate is all about the community and the people and the businesses you bring to that place. Um, and if there's enough will, you can do it by brute force. You know, The mob did it in Las Vegas first. Um, and, and now it's the entertainment capital of America, pretty much hands down. Um, yeah, so and, you have to be the first mover and you have to go big. <laughs> yes, um, and, and also I think when we talk about the metaverse, I think the metaverse is a really big concept because you know people ask me, oh, so is Sandbox going to be the metaverse? No, it's not. It's going to be a metaverse. And, and we think of it like, like a city. So you know, we hope that with good luck, Sandbox will be the New York or Tokyo or, or London of the metaverse. But there's going to be a whole world with many other cities like the Sandbox. And there are going to be cities that people, you know, with different kinds of people who speak different languages and like different things. Um, we just hope the first mover advantage means that we have a more popular one than other places, but it's not the only one. But you can still be Omaha and be great. Exactly. Right. So I guess that, that I, but I think that's the important thing that maybe people miss. Sure. It's not going to just and be one. You're thinking, you're, we're thinking in terms of if the only metaverse was New York and there still needs to be thousands of other cities. Yes. Well, Omaha's where we're going to do all our farming. It's exactly right. Yield farming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all of our yield farming. So you, you're talking about NFTs needing utility to give yes. them that true value and that you as building platforms and other platforms investing can add more utility to these items. But beyond what's, I guess, in the immediate focus and what's, mm -hmm. what's being concentrated on, what are the craziest ideas sort of in mm -hmm. your mind thinking forward of what kind of utility you could have from an NFT in the future? So I think the coolest part, and this is the most difficult to organize is the fact that NFTs are openly composable will allow us to hook into all kinds of other technology. So low-hanging fruit, which we'll probably see in the next year, are going to be things like ticketing, as in physical ticketing right. at physical events. And the idea of, for example, combining brand experiences. So imagine your you know, the New York Yankees, and you decide that you're going to do a deal with the, you know, CryptoPunks. So anybody who's a CryptoPunk owner can go to a Yankee game. You know, I'm making this up, obviously. Right. But, but the idea that you can do collaborations like that, where the ticket of admission is showing your punk at the gate, and there's a way to let you in, then you can extend that analogy almost infinitely just on ticketing. Um, and then you can start to apply the same things in other in other spheres where you're combining with other types of technology. So I think that's very, very exciting um, because you can start to use your NFT as a calling card or as a ticket of admission or as a membership to so many different types of experiences. Um, and if you're looking at it with a Web2 hat on, you know, a blockchain wallet or an NFT is essentially a single sign-in. Um, so when you're navigating the web and services on the web, 
you can identify yourself and you can do CRM all based on what's in somebody's wallet. Log in with your ape. Yep. That's a- yep. Well, because also it's clear when I look at your blockchain wallet, I should know how to treat you when you come into my experience and customize the experience appropriately because I can get, you know, your blockchain wallet may have no personal identification, but what you collect says something about you. And you have a quarter million dollars to buy an ape. Although, you know, <laughs> I, 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 although a lot of those people were admittedly very early, right? So the, the we, we talk about the fact that apes are a quarter million dollars or whatever they're trading at with the price of ETH at the moment. And the people who are buying them now, though, are not the majority of board ape holders, right? The majority are the people who got them earlier and were passionate and were smart enough to understand that vision. Um, although the people who got them early still had three or four hundred bucks to spend. Yeah, oh, which was still really <laughs> expensive. That so that's like that's the experience I think of everyone, everyone with every asset in history, probably. But yes. certainly in the crypto, right? It's the Bitcoin yes. story. It's the Ethereum story. I would buy it, but it was like five thousand. Now it's ten thousand. I'm not paying ten thousand for a Bitcoin, right? It's always looking back at what you could have just gotten it for when you didn't quite get it. I'm still thinking that way about a punk. I've almost pulled the trigger here at like a quarter million dollars because I want to be a part of that club, maybe, right? You want to exactly. FOMO into it, but uh, so how do people then identify what's going to have value and worth and actually be early as opposed to be the guy buying, you know, being Eminem sure. buying your ape for $350,000, so I think that first of all, you have to get involved in the community because I think like everything else, you know, it's like people who go and, and understand who are the up, up and coming fine art, you know, um, artists, because you spend a lot of time in the community, you go to gallery shows, you meet artists and you learn about the work. And that's why I think you see that people who got into Bored Apes early are all crypto native people for the most part who are really invested in the community. It's about being part of the community. And this is important. And I think it makes, you know, it's like any other investment, do your homework. And so being part of the community is part of that homework. Um, and I think that if you're looking at up and coming projects, my advice would always be look at utility, you know, because a lot of people are, I mean, how many, how many clone ape projects are there out yeah. there? Or uh, PFP alliterative, projects? A- alliterative animals, right? I joke about it all the time. Like, uh, exactly. Just rats. Uh, great. You know, like, exactly. If it, if it rhymes. And, <laughs> and, and if you look at the price of punks already before board apes came out, you would have thought that maybe the PFP thing was done. And then Bored Apes came out and was equally, if not more successful, depending on what measure you want to look at, right? And and they did it because they built community in a different way than the way that that Larva Labs did with with punks. Um, And so they added value to the concept. um, And I think that's where they're reaping the rewards of that now. So I think you need to look at what is the roadmap for that product, you know, is there a plan for building out lots of different content experiences or additional utility? Um, does the developer have a history of doing that? And is there a reason you should trust that they will actually follow through with their plans, for example? Um, all these things are important aspects, I think, of, of doing your homework. It's largely about community, right? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. And where do you participate in these communities? Discord groups? Discord groups, Telegram groups, um, you know, Twitter. Um, I have it on good authority that crypto Twitter is by far the most engaged content community of Twitter, like 
by far. Oh, for sure. It's not even close. Yeah, it's not even close once you uh, step outside of that sort of uh, sort of, sort of step outside of that small room and see what's going on in the rest of the place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but all those are great places, and and that's why you'll see with any new project that comes out, they'll actively you know moderate their Discord channels and their and their Telegram channels and everything, and go hang out with the community and see what you think because ultimately the place that's going to be a good investment should also be a place that you enjoy hanging out with the community where you feel some sense of community yourself um, because you'll get more out of it. This is something that I sort of, that bounces around in my head is that, you know, I think a lot of these projects, which you said are sort of knockoff apes, for example, they come off like cash grabs, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just people do something knockoff. They don't really focus on it. They see how much money they can get for them. And the minute the value goes down, there is no real community, right? So the community yep. is really strong as long as the number is going up to some yes. degree. I, I always, you know, and that's where I had the problem with calling a lot of it art, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is technically art, but it's, to me, you might buy a piece of art because you believe the number will go up or the value, but you should only buy a piece of art you'd be willing to hold to forever if it didn't. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like exactly. buy it because you love it. You, you don't buy an MP3 because you're going to sell it for more. You buy, or you don't buy an MP3 at all anymore, but you know, uh, but you would buy it because, or, you know, it kind of takes me back to the vinyl days. I would buy a record and I would take the notes out and read who played every instrument. And I felt sort of a connection to that piece. And to me, I think that's why I was sort of dismissive for a very long time of that side of the NFT world was because yes. I felt like that part was missing. People were just buying it because they thought it would be worth more and convincing themselves it was cool. <laughs> so yes, well, it reminds investment. me. It remind, reminds me of that Groucho Marx quote, right? I wouldn't ever want to be a member of a club who would accept me. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. So it's about it's about feeling that resonance. So you know, you see great you see projects for example like star atlas star oh, atlas star on atlas. solana has been incredibly successful but there's a bond in the community which is everybody loves space and they love the idea of space science fiction and that's part of the community so you can share that passion with the other people in the community and 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 that's what holds them together and the project is successful because they figured out how to create content that resonates with a consistent community Right, even without a game being developed yet, right? Correct. With with extremely cool, extremely cool trailers and cool NFTs and cool ships. My same friends who love NBA Top Shot have bought ships in Star Atlas, and we're guys in our mid forties. Yep, but that's because guys in their mid forties all saw the same sci-fi Star movies Wars growing man. up. Yeah, or Star Trek. We're Trekkies and Star Wars kids, and it it, it resonates, right? Yep. Same reason we like the Mandalorian and 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 Boba exactly. Fett and those things. Right. And I think that that like really is the corollary for, for what's to come. It's that sort of like, cause we, I don't know how old you are, but like, you know, you watch stranger things and that feels like my oh, childhood, yeah. right? Absolutely. Like Goonies. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so I, I guess for people who are growing up now, they will get those type experiences in these metaverse project product projects and in, in game. Yes. Yes. For sure. For sure. And so I think again, it sounds trite to say, oh, it's all about community, but it literally is just about community because 
The thing is now the community cannot just share a passion the way they share fan art and like start a group on Reddit, but they can actually transact with each other and it becomes a virtual swap meet because for all those people who have Star Atlas content and are fans, there's a there's a way for them to trade that content, you know, and sell it and buy it and sell it with each other. So it's a much more, uh, it's a stronger bond still. Right. So say, uh, you know, I'm an individual, not a company. I get why Warner Music Group definitely wants to have a presence in the sandbox, mm -hmm. right? They're going to do concerts. They're going to make money. They're going to offer experiences. If I'm just an individual, want to go buy, uh, buy a plot of land next to my favorite rapper. Yep. Um, for example, what, you know, beyond beyond the monetary side, I mean, how expensive A, would it be for me to develop something cool on that piece of land right now? And beyond that, just being for my entertainment, what does that look like if I ever wanted to monetize it? So I think that there are two things to think about. On the one hand, the tools that the team has been creating for you to be able to create your own content, they've been working on those for years. So anybody can make content in the sandbox. I mean, there's a difference if it's a professional studio to an amateur in their spare time, of course, like anything else in life. But the tools are such, and the pixelated art style was by design. So everybody can make cool stuff because we want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. I mean, the heart of the sandbox is not for it to be a corporate environment. It's about user-generated content, meaning individuals. The reason to have corporate partnerships is because like any massive community, you want to have a mix of stuff. You want to have businesses and shops and yeah. professional entertainment as well as amateur stuff. So we want an environment where everybody mixes together and what will happen is like a city, right? So you're going to have different neighborhoods in the city with different kinds of content and interests where people will gather for different stuff. So I would, of course, encourage people to buy land in the sandbox because it allows them to build their own stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, given the amount of traction that the sandbox has had so far, um, you know, I think that for sure, you're not going to lose your money if you invest in land. I can't guarantee on a day-to-day -day basis that it will go up every day. Um, but I think, you know, if you believe that the community direction is headed in the right direction, I think that it's a reasonable it's a reasonable investment only because um, it will hold. Not dissimilar to buying a piece of land in the real world and building a house and not expecting to flip it in six months. Exactly. So the big investment is to think, what do you want to do with the land? Because also you can you can come to Sandbox and have a great time without developing land. Yeah, you around. can just come in and walk around and experience stuff. I mean, there's that part of it too. So it's it's you know hopefully there's something for everyone. To build a big mansion in there. And, uh, and for obviously you can build this yourself, but like, what's the level of expense right now to hire one of these studios? If they said, I, I want to go in there and I want to build a mansion to have my presence in, you know, in the sandbox. Totally up to, I mean, literally like any kind of game could development. Be millions of dollars, right. It can be, it can be anything from, you know, hundreds of dollars to millions of dollars, depending on how ambitious you are. Because um, you can you can hire individuals who can do this for you um, who are you know freelancers or you can hire whole studios to make you know professional corporate level content for you um, and and also frankly there's um, there are great links on the site um, to developers who work closely with the team like third party developers who specialize just in making content for the sandbox if if people are looking for developers. I yeah it's incredibly cool.
Incredibly cool. And I, I wonder if we really will get to a point, which maybe, listen, I, I don't think you can ever replace the in-person experience of going to a concert. Yes. Right? I, would, I, I would hate to think that all the concerts will be in the metaverse, right? Yes. Um, but I think that if you have both, it's such mm-hmm. an incredible, amazing addition, especially for people who either can't get to that city or don't have the money and just want to experience that interaction with their favorite artist. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, if we can offer these kind of metaverse experiences, but at price points where it becomes an investment, like when we, you know, buy digital media, you know, whether it was CDs and vinyl or, or downloads, but at those price points to experience live events through the metaverse, because there's an economy of scale where the artist can offer that experience at that price point, rather than the relatively higher price point of a live event, that's amazing because that just allows that. Yeah. It's, it's great for everybody because it allows fans, as you said, to be able to access stuff. I mean, often for really big artists, the problem is, you know, not only can't you get to the city or the, you know, the tickets are expensive. You might just not even be able to get them honestly, because they sell out so fast. And, yeah. and so, you know, I think there are a lot of people who would just love to participate in, in these kind of events. I agree. And what about the uh, centralized metaverses, the Zuckerverses of the uh, world that <laughs> we're going to see, obviously, versus these, these yeah. more, more decentralized versions that are blockchain-based? I mean, aren't we going to have sort of this competition between centralized and decentralized metaverses? I think there will always be a healthy tension between the level of centralization and decentralization in what we do. But I think it's extremely important. And this is the only place where we as a company kind of get on our philosophical sandbox. It's very important for us that the metaverse remains open um, because open platforms and you know, open source technology is the reason that we are all here and have had what limited success as an industry that we have so far. Um, I mean, this industry is, is in my 30 years working, this is the nicest industry I've ever worked in. And the reason it is, is because everybody has a spirit of collaboration because we all benefit from collaborating with each other because every piece of software we build is connected to one another. And, and that gives it power as well. It means every time somebody else comes in and builds a new application and interoperates with us, everybody benefits um, because there is this network effect. And that doesn't happen once people start wall, walling gardens. It's why all of a sudden Axie Infinity can literally blow out of the water any other game that's ever been made in terms of the economic activity in the game. You know, when you think that in August Axie Infinity generated the same amount of money for the developer as Candy Crush did for its developer, but with 2 million players instead of 270 million players, um, that is, that, that's, you know, that's evolution. Crazy. So we're, we're all in agreement that we're opting out of the Zuckerverse then. I get it. <laughs> and, and, and opting into the, the better versions. And I love I, that you I just said think it's bad for innovation. It's bad for innovation. Yeah. I agree. I love that you said that you're on your philosophical sandbox instead of your soapbox. I, got <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So where can everybody uh, follow you and follow along with what Animoca is doing after this conversation? Absolutely. So as I said, Twitter, Definitely, we're all over the Twitter sphere. Um, you can follow me. I'm at View from HK um, or Animoca Brands. You know, as a hub, is a great place to be connected to all the different projects of what we do. 
Um, obviously, we're on Discord and Telegram and all the usual places. And, uh, and you know, you can always go to our website if you really need a, a central repository of stuff. Still, still might buy an ape. Might happen. <laughs> Are you an ape? I, I, I am an ape holder, I have to say. Ape. Of course you're an ape. I should have gotten in on that. See, that's going to be my one still. Maybe it won't be my regret of 2022. We'll see. <laughs> but that's the thing. They're always. I'm always going to be waiting for them to come down in price, right? Yep. Well, never and will. you never, you never know. Oh yeah, of course. But uh, volatility you, you is the hallmark of the crypto business. It's what keeps us in business, isn't it? Well, thank you so much. This is really one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. I, I think that it gives so much. Uh, perspective onto what's to come and really how early we are. And I think that's so important for people to hear who think that they've missed the boat. Oh yeah. No, the, the boat hasn't even left yet. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much, Robbie. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Scott.